Section 4 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland, Volume 3, From the Accession of Nicholas II Until the Present Day, by Shimon Dubunov, translated by Israel Friedlander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by S.S. Kim, Manikut Baisho, Portugal. Chapter 32. The National Awakening. Part 1. 1. The Rise of Political Zionism For two decades, the sledgehammer of Russian reaction had been descending with crushing force upon the vast community of six million Russian Jews. Yet, in the end, it was found that the heavy hammer, to use the well-known simile of Pushkin, instead of shattering the national organism of Jewry, had only helped to steal it and to harden its indestructible spiritual self. The Jewry of Russia showed to the world that it was endowed with an iron constitution, and those that had hoped to crush it by the stroke of their hammer were ultimately forced to admit that they had produced the opposite result. At first, it seemed as if the effect of these blows would be to turn the Jewry into a shapeless mess. There were moments of despair and complete prostration when the approaching darkness threatened to obliterate all paths. This stage was followed by a period of mental haziness, marked by deep yearnings for regeneration, which were bound to remain fruitless because unaccompanied by organizing energy. This transitional state of affairs lasted throughout the 80s and during the first half of the 90s. But by and by, out of the chaos of these nebulous social tendencies, there emerged more and more clearly the outlines of definite political national doctrines and organizations, and new paths were blazed which, leading in different directions, converged toward one goal, that of the regeneration of the Jewish people from within, both in its national and social life. The turning point of this process is marked by the year 1897, that year in which the first International Zionist Congress held its sessions, inaugurated not only the political Zionist movement, but also the development of other currents of Jewish national and political thoughts. The entire gamut of political slogans rang through the air, all bearing testimony to one and the same fact that the era of national prostration had come to an end, and that the vague longings for liberation and regeneration had assumed the character of a conscious endeavor pursuing a well-defined course. The careful observer could scarcely fail to perceive that beneath the hammer of history, the formless mass of jewelry was being forged into a well-shaped instrument of great power. The organization of the Jewish people had made its beginning. Among the movements which arose at the end of the 19th century, there were some which came to the surface of Jewish life rather noisily, attracting the attention of the Jewish masses as well as that of the outside world. Others, however, were embedded more deeply in the consciousness of the educated classes and were productive of a new outlook upon the national Jewish problem. The former were an answer to the question of Jewish misery of the Judenot in its practical aspect. 
the latter offered a solution of the national cultural problem of Judaism in its totality. The movements of the first kind are represented by political Zionism and territorialism. In the second category stand spiritual Zionism and national cultural autonomism. On a parallel line with both varieties of the national movement and frequently intersecting it went the Jewish socialistic movement, tinged to a lesser or larger degree by nationalistic tendencies. For 15 years, the lovers of Zion, or the Hibat Zion movement, had been pursuing its course in Russia without showing marked progress in the direction of that universal Jewish goal which had been formulated by its champions, Lilian Blum and Pinsker. During that period, some 15 Jewish agricultural colonies had sprung up in Palestine. The Jewish population of the Holy Land had been increased by some 20,000 souls, and an effort had been made to create a national model school and to revive the ancient Hebrew tongue, but needless to say, all this was far from solving the burning passion of the 6 million Russian Jews who were clamoring for relief from their intolerable condition. At the slow rate of progress which had hitherto characterized the Jewish endeavors in Palestine, any attempt to transfer a considerable portion of the Russian center to the Holy Land was doomed to failure, particularly in view of the hostility of the Turkish government, which was anxious to check even this insignificant growth of Jewish colonization. At that juncture, the air of Europe resounded with the clarion tones of Theodor Herzl's appeal to the Jews to establish a Jewish state. The appeal came from Western Europe, from the circles in which the sufferings of their Eastern brethren had hitherto been viewed entirely from the philanthropic point of view. It came from a young Venice journalist who had been aroused by the urge of anti-Semitism in the capital of Austria, the agitation of Burgomaster Lugo and others, and by the exciting anti-Jewish scenes enacted in the capital of France, where, as a correspondent of the Viennese Daily, the Neue Freie Presse, he followed the Dreyfus affair in its first early stages. Herzl became suddenly conscious of the acute pain of the Jewish misery. He saw the anti-Semitism of Western Europe closing ranks with the Judeophobia of Eastern Europe. He saw the ideal of assimilation crumbling to pieces, and he made up his mind to hoist the flag of Jewish nationalism, scarcely aware of the fact that it had already been hoisted in the East. His pamphlet, The Jewish State, which appeared in the beginning of 1896, was, in its fundamental premises, a repetition of the old appeal of Pinsker. The author of the new publication was convinced, like his predecessor, that the only relief from the Jewish misery lay in the concentration of the Jewish people upon a separate territory, without determining the question whether that territory should be Palestine or Argentina. But in contradistinction to Pinsker, Herzl was not satisfied with formulating the problem theoretically. He offered, at the same time, a plan of political and economic organization by means of which 
the problem was to be solved. The creation of special representative bodies which were to enter into negotiations with rulers and governments concerning the cession of an appropriate territory to the Jews under an international protectorate and were also to obtain huge funds to carry out the transplantation and resettlement of vast Jewish masses. Representing a combination of theoretic enthusiasm and practical utopias, the Jewish state of Herzl revived the nearly smothered political hopes which had been cherished by the Hobbesian circles in Russia. The Russian Jews, groaning under the yoke of an Egyptian bondage, flocked to the new Moses who announced the glad tidings of the Exodus and Herzl, beholding the ready host in the shape of the Hobbesian societies, was quick to adjust his territorialistic scheme to the existing Palestinian movement. In this wise, the organization of political Zionism sprang into life, using as its medium of expression the international party congresses, most of which convened in Switzerland, in the city of Basel. The first Basel Congress held in August 1897 was an impressive demonstration of the national awakening of the Jewish people. For the first time, the united representative of Eastern and Western Jewry proclaimed before the world that the scattered sections of Jewry looked upon themselves as one national organism, striving for national regeneration. From the center of Western assimilation, advocating the disappearance of Jewry, came the war cry proclaiming the continued existence of the Jewish nation, though that existence was conditioned by the establishment of a separate, publicly and legally assured territorial center. Of the four articles of the Basel program, which were adopted by the first Congress, three deal with the fundamental task of the party, the political and financial endeavors looking to the colonization of large Jewish masses in Palestine, and only one voices the need of strengthening the Jewish national feeling and self-respect. In the further progress of the Zionist organization, these two principles, the political and the cultural, were constantly struggling for mastery, the Zionists of the West gravitating towards political activities and diplomatic negotiations, while the Zionists of the East laid greater emphasis upon internal cultural work along national lines, looking upon it as an indispensable prerequisite for national rebirth. The struggle between these two principles continued at each succeeding annual congress at the second and third held in Basel in 1898 and 1899, and the fourth in London in 1900, and the fifth in Basel in 1901. On the one hand, the Zionists were feverishly engaged in the external organization of the movement, the consolidation of the Shekel Payer societies, the creation of the Jewish Colonial Trust and the Jewish National Fund, the conduct of diplomatic negotiations with the Turkish government and with the political representatives of other countries for the purpose of obtaining a guaranteed charter for a wholesale colonization in Palestine. On the other hand, endeavors were made to nationalize 
the Jewish intellectual classes, to promote the Hebrew language, to create a national school, and to conquer the communities for Zionism, that is, to strengthen the influence of the party in the administration of the Jewish communities. The Convention of Russian Zionists, held at Minsk in 1902, paid particular attention to the cultural aspiration of the party and adopted a resolution calling for the appointments of two committees, an orthodox and a progressive, to find ways and means for placing Jewish education on a national basis. The same convention demonstrated the growth of movement, for during the first five years of its existence, the Zionist organization in Russia had succeeded in securing about 70,000 shekel payers who were organized in approximately 500 societies. Yet, the political and financial achievements of Zionism during that period of bloom, prior to the crisis of 1903, were insignificant. The diplomatic negotiations of the Zionist leader, Dr. Theodor Herzl, with the Sultan of Turkey and his government, as well as with the German emperor and several other European sovereigns, failed of their purpose, the obtaining of a Turkish charter for the wholesale colonization of Palestine. The financial instrument of the party, the Jewish Colonial Trust, proved as yet too weak to collect the proposed fund of $10 million, a modest sum, when compared with the purpose for which it was destined. The colonization of Palestine proceeded at a slow pace, and its miniature scale was entirely out of proportion to the grand plan of establishing a national autonomous center in Palestine. With all, Zionism proved during that brief interval a potent factor in the national awakening of Jewry. The strength of the movement lay not in the political aims of the organization, which were mostly beyond reach, but in the very fact that tens of thousands of Jews were organized with the national end in view. It lay, moreover, in the current national cultural activities in the Gegenwartsarbeit, which, yielding to necessity, had been raised from a means to an end. In Western Europe, the principal significance of Zionism lay in its effect as a counterbalance to assimilation. Herzl having declared that Zionism aims at the establishment of a publicly and legally assured home for those Jews who, in their present places of residence, are not able or not willing to assimilate themselves. In Russia, however, where Jewish life was dominated by more powerful nationalizing influences, the chief importance of political Zionism lay in this very propaganda of a national rebirth in the midst of those whom militant Judeophobia was endeavoring to reduce by intolerable oppression to the level of moral degenerates. The apathy and faint-heartedness which had characterized public Jewish life during the 80s and the first half of the 90s was followed by a period of noisy bustle, of organizing activity, and of great animation. The pale of settlement resounded with the din of its hundreds of Zionist societies, with the speeches of Zionist agitators at public meetings and in the synagogues, 
with the intense agitation preceding the elections for each Zionist Congress, with the heated debate about the program between the political and the cultural Zionists, between the Nizraist, the faction of Orthodox Zionists, and the progressives. The public utterances of the Zionist leaders, Herzl and Nordau, were the subject of interminable discussion and comment. The Russian Jews were particularly stirred by the annual Congress addresses of Nordau on the general situation in Jewry, in which the famous writer pictured with characteristic vividness the tragedy of the Golos, the boundless extent of Jewish misery having a material aspect in the lands of oppression and the moral aspect among the emancipated sections of Jewry, and which culminated in the thought that Jewry could not exist without Zion. Nordahl's motto, Jewry will be Zionistic or it will not be, was differently interpreted in the different circles of the Russian Jewish intelligentsia. Among the Russian leaders of the party, only a minority, Dr. Mandelstam of Kiev and others, were fully in accord with the extreme political views of the Western leaders. The majority of the former workers in the ranks of the Hobebe Zion movement, Ushiskin, Chlenov and others, sought to harmonize the political functions of Zionism with its cultural aspirations and combined the diplomatic negotiations concerning a charter with the upkeep of the existing colonization work in Palestine, which later was contemptuously branded by the hound by adherents of political Zionism as infiltration. This babel of opinions within the ranks of the organization could not fail to weaken its effectiveness as an agency for the attainment of the ultimate Zionist goal. At the same time, it brought life and animation into the movement. The crack of the whip of the Egyptian taskmasters remained unheard amidst the clash of ideas and the proud slogans of national liberation, which resounded throughout the Jewish pale. 2. Spiritual Zionism or Ahad Hamism And yet, political Zionism viewed as a theory failed to offer a satisfactory solution of the great Jewish problem in all its historic complexity. Born of the reaction against anti-Semitism and endeavoring to soothe the pain of the wounded Jewish heart, it was marked by all its merits and demerits of a theory which was substantially messianic in character and was entirely dependent on subjective forces, on faith and willpower. If you only will it, then it is no fairy tale. In these worlds, the ultimate goal of political Zionism is indicated by its founder, who firmly believed that an extraordinary exertion of the national will would transform the fairy tale of a Jewish state into reality. When confronted with the question as to the future of the Jewish nation in case faith and willpower should prove unable to grapple with the conditions over which it had no control, and the fairy tale of a united political autonomous center should not be realized, political Zionism either remained silent or indulged in a polemical retort which was in flagrant contradiction to Jewish history. Without Zion, Judaism is bound to perish. The national conscience, however, could not be reconciled to such an answer. 
a more or less satisfactory solution to the problem of Judaism could not spring from the external reaction against anti-Semitism, but could only mature as the fruit of profound contemplation of the course of development pursued by the Jewish people in the diaspora. Such a solution could only be found in the endeavor to adapt a new national movement to this historic course. From this point of view, political Zionism was rectified by spiritual Zionism, the teaching of the publicist and philosopher Ahad Ham, Hugh Ginsburg. Even before political Zionism or Herzlianism appeared on the scene, Ahad Ham had succeeded in substantially modifying the Palestinian idea as formulated by Lillian Bloom and Pinsker. In the program of the semi-Masonic order, Bnei Moshe, Sons of Moses, established by him in Odessa, he laid down the fundamental principle that the preparation of the land for the people must be preceded by the transformation of the people into a firmly knit national organization. We must propagate the national ideas and convert it into a lofty moral ideal. Having become associated with the Palestinian colonization in a practical manner, as a leading member of the Odessa Palestine Society founded in 1890, Ahad Ham indefatigably preached that the significance of this microscopic colonization was not to be sought in its economic research, but in its spiritual and cultural effects in establishing upon the historical soil of Judaism a nursing ground for pure national culture, which should be free from foreign admixture and from the inevitable cultural eclecticism of the diaspora. After the spectacular appearance of political Zionism on the Jewish stage, this fundamental idea of Neo-Palestinianism was more fully elaborated by Ahad Ham, assuming the shape of a comprehensive doctrine known as the Doctrine of Spiritual Zionism. When the first Basel Congress was over, Ahad Ham declared that the Jewish state, as formulated by Herzl, was beyond realization for the reason that, under the prevailing circumstances, it was entirely impossible to transfer to Palestine the whole diaspora or even a substantial part of it. Consequently, the Palestinian colonization could not put an end to the material Jewish misery, whereas a small Jewish center gradually rising in Palestine might, with the help of a proper organization, solve the national spiritual problem of Judaism. The formation of a spiritual center in the historic homeland of the nation, the creation in the center of a Jewish national school, the revival of the Hebrew language as a medium of daily speech, the untrammeled development of a Jewish culture without the pressure of a foreign environment. Such, in short, he held to be the true goal of Palestine idea. A publicly and legally assured home for the Jewish spirit of this kind would exert an uninterrupted nationalizing influence upon the diaspora, serving as a living center of attraction for a genuine Jewish culture and acting like a focus which scatters its rays over a large periphery. The Zionist doctrine of Ahad Ham as a counterbalance to official Zionism, which was hallmarked by the Basel program, 
led to interminable discussions among the partisans of the movement. It did not succeed in creating a separate party or special public agency for its realization, yet the element of that doctrine had mingled in a larger lesser degree with the views of the political Zionists in Russia and manifested themselves in the protests of the cultural Zionists against the extreme political advocates of the movement at the Zionist Congress. The Zionist Convention at Minsk, referred to previously, resulted in a partial triumph for the ideas championed by Ahad Ham, who submitted a report on the spiritual regeneration of Judaism. The Convention adopted a resolution calling for a larger measure of cultural work in the schedule of the party activities, but rejected at the same time the proposal of the referee to create a Jewish world organization for the revival of Jewish culture on the ground that such an organization might destroy the political equilibrium of Zionism. End of section 4